Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. I'm Tom Edwards. On today's programme, we meet two Northern Lights, each founders of Norwegian brands that blend innovative approaches to their respective industries with traditional values of provenance, design and craft. First, we'll declassify some of the secrets behind the scenes at a watchmaking company that's quite literally working under the radar. We have a special forces timepiece. It is made out of forged carbon because it doesn't lead any heat. You won't notice this on a heat-seeking camera. And later, we'll meet a founder who wants people to wear their clothing for at least a decade. We have to change. We have to buy less. We have to buy better and create new business models that change everything around consumption. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Watchmaker Henrik Rye is the founder and CEO of Micro Millspec, a company that designs and produces custom Swiss-made timekeeping instruments for special operations, forces, first responders and military units. Henrik founded the company in 2020 after working in the watchmaking industry for more than a decade. Just three years into the venture, the watches caught the eye of another elite force on a different kind of field, Manchester City footballer Erling Haaland, who designed a device to his own specs and unique sporting requirements. Henrik Rye stopped by Monocle HQ to chat about the brand's impressive portfolio. He began by telling me about the start of the journey. Me and my wife, we moved out of our childhood homes and moved together in Sagene in Oslo, which is like an old part of town with brick houses, brickle streets. And at the end of that road that we moved in, there was a watchmaker. And his door is, is so narrow, but it was always open and he was playing jazz all day long. And inside you had his, his world, clocks on the, on the walls. None of them was actually accurate, so they were just chiming all day long. And I remember walking into his store and asking him what makes a watch cost $60,000 or $600. There's 60 seconds in a minute regardless, so can you please elaborate on this for me? Uh, So I I always had this fascination, but this was the first time that I actually spoke to a professional. And um, yeah, that started on a journey. I actually rented an office in his workshop for six years. And one day, a guy from the military walked in and he said he wanted to do something custom, something personal. And obviously my interest <laughs> sparked to life again and I walked out and asked him, so why, why? They can do anything. What is it that you actually want? So that's my journey into watchmaking. It's amazing. Well, it sounds almost sort of philosophical. It sounds like a fable, this idea of this little doorway <laughs> and you go through it and then you embark on this Oh, you should meet Eric, journey. that watchmaker. He's the nicest guy ever and he's so nice that everybody wants to speak to him and he has no time in actually (laughs) working on watches. But it is funny. Why do you think watches do engender that degree of passion? Like I said, I've spoken to other founders of watch brands here in the studio. Almost unlike any other sector, even within Mm. the world of luxury. I think when we create a custom timepiece, it always starts with a discussion of what is custom because that's different to anyone. And I always use this example where you imagine the watch industry as an art gallery. You walk inside, and in there you have, obviously, the different artists being the watch manufacturers or the watch brands. And you have all of these amazing 
pictures or whatever the art is. And that's the watch models. And they always vary in size, price, popularity, demand. And when you want something very specific, for example, you get so attached to that one thing, you think about it, You maybe you want to save money to buy it, maybe you can't afford it. Like So you start your own journey on this painting, for example. And I think it's very much the same with, with watches. You see something you like, you dig into the history, you dig into who's, for example, previous owners. There's a, a track record on the most famous watches in, in the world. You can trace them backwards. And then when it comes to Mark Millspec, you would imagine then somebody walking into this art gallery and wanting something very specific. You won't do that by painting a moustache on a, <laughs> a finished canvas. Like you, you, you wouldn't approach it like that. So we are basically like a tattoo artist in this world. A little bit more rock and roll. And we have the confidence in the process to create something that you would wear for the rest of your life. It's amazing. We've got, I should say, I'm going to try and paint a picture using my words yes. here, Henry. We've got something that wouldn't have looked out of place in Desert Storm here, a special <laughs> case packed with some of your models. And let's talk a bit about that then. They are designed then, as you said, from the serendipitous meeting for broadly these military applications. Talk to us a little bit, though, about the way you create these pieces for that audience, that user. Talk to us a bit about the whole process from beginning no, to end. No, absolutely. It typically starts with that, what is custom. But then it's very much about understanding what you think is important. And then I mean by the customer. And we had a client once, their call sign is Oscar. And they're a bodyguard unit. They always wear a suit. When they approach a building, they can't use north, south, east, because that would vary all the time. And they can't use the exit and the entry, because their exit and entry will be different from what you would use, obviously, when you have a target or an object when you want to exit. So they told us that they use colors, black, red, white, and yellow. Yeah, And they would say black on box, and that's their entry into the building. So on the bezel, we made the square out of the colors. So we have all four colors on the bezel, and you can turn it, so black on box is then the entry. So you could actually, all of the participants from the outside and inside know then where is your roadmap. You wouldn't know it unless you... No, exactly. You wouldn't see it unless yeah. you you know it. And there is this idea of sharing. It is almost like code. Maybe that's why the yeah. sort of militaristic complex works so well here because it's kind of what you say without saying anything and what you can show without showing anything. There's no, something yeah, kind of romantic right. about it almost. It's a storytelling piece. So you know, but nobody else knows. And they, obviously, when you meet somebody, they have to think that it's a great-looking piece. Then <laughs> we know we've done our job. Well, tell me a bit about the actual pieces themselves then, mm. because they're Swiss-made. As you said, they have this interesting genesis always. Mm -hmm. But if people go to your website, they'll see, I think, one model currently you can register yes. your interest for yeah. and begin, begin the process. How does the actual that model work commercially? Because, it's again, it's quite unusual. Well, we haven't been able to really tap into that commercial field, but we do have, we've had some units that have been small. So they have opened up for collectors to pick up the remaining inventory that they need to fulfill in order to create a custom timepiece. But that's been the only thing that we've had available so far. Is that going to be the model? What does that look like, Henry, as you look to the future, this idea? Because it is for this trade, for these yeah. craftspeople within these specific sectors. Is that the landscape where you're happiest operating, do you think? It's very satisfying being able to 
work with watches and then you collect all of these stories from people saying that I'm actually never going to use my watch. I'm going to give it to my my family when I pass. Or um, It means a lot to, to the ones that receive them. But yeah, we do have a lot of interest from the market. We do have models in development that's going to be available. But so far, everything has been because of the list that you say, like we, mm. you're able to register online to receive a notification if we have something that's available and everything's been, it's gone. And tell me about some of the fantasy moments that have become reality. Obviously, there's that meeting, that yeah. auspicious <laughs> meeting at the start. But I don't know, if you're making a timepiece for the US Space Force, it feels like something from, yeah. a kid, from a kid's comic. What an amazing feeling. Is it a sort of validation that the dream is working? Talk to us about some of those examples. Yeah, Space Force is an odd example. Space Force contacted us. And we always provide a draft. So it's very hard to imagine a custom timepiece. So we always do a lot of work before approaching the unit with a final design. And then they told us, obviously, we need approval for all of the official symbols, since it's going to be a, a piece for the unit. So we had to go through a due diligence with the United States Air Force in order to get the Space Force approval. And... Yeah, we started out just contacting the right people. It took two months before we even got to the point of being reviewed. So then they sent us a contract, 25 pages long in Latin English. <laughs> <laughs> and I sent this to, to a lawyer because we, we couldn't work within those frames or the, the terms on the, on the contract. Not because it was a bad contract, it's just that we're doing custom watches. So the process is, is very different from a jacket or a hat or... Yeah. So we rewrote the whole contract and sent it back. So that aha moment for me, I never believed it because I didn't imagine them actually coming back to us when we just rewrote the whole thing. But they did. But it was such a slow process that it never actually became that one moment. And then obviously we're more confident in our process. Today we have provided 30 watches to fighting units worldwide. And we have... 40 new projects in the pipeline. So it's been a really amazing, great journey and very appreciative to do this. Yeah, it's, it's a brilliant story. Tell me a little bit about how you then collaborate with your team internally, because lots of different people, I guess, bring lots of different elements of craft, whether that's in sourcing of materials, obviously the design process. I know you're very hands-on. Tell us a bit about the creative process oh, yeah. and, and how that comes together. There was a time in our company where... Nobody actually knew what we were doing, to be honest. I, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So many entrepreneurs have this same funny moment. And that, but it's empowering, I guess, in a way, because there's not a, you're not following a path. You're just no. figuring it out as you go along. Empowering, maybe somehow, but also really frustrating. <laughs> so when we started out, it was me and a second founder. And we ended up having sold 2,000 watches, and we haven't produced a single one yet. It's just by pre-orders, 2,000 watches. We're two people. We're getting all of this delivered, and we had 20 new leads. So we had to hire new people. So we thought, this is going to be the solution to everything. And it was absolutely not the solution to, to anything. So I came into office, and now we're five people, and I just thought, I'm going to ask each one of them, do you know what we do? What do we sell? And they all, of course, were in the realm of providing the same answer, but it surprised me that nobody said the same thing. So we were obviously on a different page or we were lacking some leadership towards where are we heading. And then how are we going to manage a team if we don't know exactly what to tell people? 
internally on what we do. So we made up a list that we are storytellers and we make personal watches. That's what we do every day. And from there, it's been much easier to create all of these other separate processes that you mentioned, like how, how do you manage your team? And what's unique in our company is the level of knowledge each individual team member have about watchmaking, the entire process from the drawings, obviously the, the drafts, the technical drawings, the production part, how do you talk with a customer, how do you understand or decipher their pitch to you because it can be quite abstract how they want to watch to to look like and then obviously delivery customer support we're all very hands-on and then when we grew even further it became important to manage how we spend our time together and that's where i think i found the most value and maybe lessons in in what not to do you talked about how personal things are, and I'm sure everyone asks you about this, and I apologise, but as a oh, as a football fan, I'm going to ask anyway. Scary goal monster, Erling Haaland. <laughs> he obviously has one of your, your watches. Again, yeah. and super personal, just the one. Again, are these the kind of pinch-yourself moments where you're like, I can't yes, believe this is happening? Just tell, yeah. tell, us a bit about, tell us a little bit about that one. So uh, Haaland, is, he is a very private guy. Thank you for not mentioning his name, but I did. <laughs> So I can't really speak too much about, but and that also goes for our military units. Like we, we have projects where we don't even know who's ordering the timepiece. It's just a line in the document with a code that we have to decipher. So for us, this is sort of a part of our process. But still, Norway is Norway. It's quite, I wouldn't say small. We have great distances, but maybe not between people. And yeah, we got away and we spoke to his dad. And there, there are not that many Norwegian watch companies. Uh, and there's obviously nobody doing custom projects and he being a collector one of the biggest one i think now he found it very interesting and we provided something that he yeah it was a silhouette of him on the dial and there's an even bigger on the case back so uh, he was happy i love that story and i like the idea of being personal having that deep understanding but there is a sort of distance a necessary distance because of the nature of the work that a lot of these people do it's fascinating to go yeah. back to our <laughs> desert storm style <laughs> case of watches maybe just from this selection here pick one out yeah talk about it just just tell us a bit about the look the feel you reach for one straight away yes obviously it's hard to do this because you have to imagine everything but in front of us here now we have 10 watches the first one we ever made was for the 330 Squadron, the Royal Rescue Squadron in uh, Norway. And we have a Special Forces timepiece, which is Black Forge Carbon. On the dial, you have their pistol grip. So like their last go-to solution is the, one, is the gun that they have on their hip. So that's the pattern of the dial of that timepiece. It is made out of forged carbon because it doesn't lead any heat. So you can actually... You won't notice this on a heat-seeking camera if you wear it, which you would have done with steel because that's the most heat-leading material. And from there we have, watch it for the U.S. Asymmetric Warfare Group. We have a tactical piece here for the Canadian Special Forces. But the one that I reached for was our field testing unit because all of our watches, as we talked about, they're, they're personal. So I'm actually not, by definition, allowed to wear any of them. Because you have to qualify, like you have to have a license to carry from the, from the unit. But obviously I love all of the designs because they have a different story to them. But the one that I picked is our, one of our first designs, which is the field testing unit. And we made 30 pieces. And on the dial, there is a serial number, the movement 
inside. It's, so the full spec is on the dial, which is quite odd. And on top here, it says sink at 12. And there's no markings on the bezel. So it's completely clean. There's no markings on the crown and the case back. So it looks like a piece of steel that's been really nice polished. And sync at 12 here means that at 12, take a picture of your iPhone so that we can then read the information and see how is the caliber performing in the timepiece. And we delivered 30 of these and we haven't received a single one back. So this has become a cold piece like immediately. And it's this is what we have that's in most demand. And that's also closest to, to home for us as a company because we use this to put it in the field and uh, test it. So that's my purpose. I love that. So kind of a trade piece. You know, it's the, the artisan approach, I guess, if you, if you like. Does it matter how you look at your trade and your craft? It's, it's a good question because you have the high end of this where there's, it's completely limitless what you can put into a, a timepiece. What I think and also what's most important is that if you go too low in quality, it would just be a huge disappointment. If you go too high in both price and, and quality, well, quality then in terms of are you putting on diamonds, are you using gold, like not performance, because these timepieces, for example, they perform within plus minus seven seconds per day, which is like one of the top performance measurements that you can get. But then again, you have the sapphire glass, you have the stainless steel case, you have the water resistant, which is now 20 ATM on this one. And beyond that, it starts to get really expensive if you go for the bigger brands, which also means in our case that we're going to lose a lot of customers because they don't buy it so that you would like it. They buy it because it's like a tattoo for them. They want to wear this for the rest of their life. So it has to be good enough to withstand that journey and be serviced for all foreseeable future, but also approachable enough so that it can actually afford it. What is next, Henrik? Exciting. You've alluded already, you've got lots of projects. It sounds like you've got more interest than you could possibly ever service as a business, but what should we be looking out for in the next few next few months, say? We actually got a letter from the Canadian Ministry of Defence being approved for their official symbols. So, Canada, <laughs> here we come. That was Henrik Rye, the founder and CEO of Micro Millspec. And you can learn more about the brand, head to micromillspec.com. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Hugh Egil Tobiasen is the founder and CEO of Northern Playground, an Oslo-based apparel brand started by Hugh Egil and his friend, both of whom loved being active in the great outdoors, but hating the discomfort that came with getting too warm and sweaty in their cold-weather clothing. Hugh Egil and his co-founder decided to create a solution to the problem by learning how to sew on YouTube. They then started making woolen zip-up long johns that could be easily removed without taking off their trousers and shoes. Despite not originally planning on starting a business, they ended up doing exactly that due to the interest and encouragement of their friends who loved the product. But the real breakthrough moment came when Northern Playground was featured on Norwegian breakfast TV and demand and sales went through the roof. Uegel quit his job that same day and fully committed to the business. That was in 2014. Now, almost a decade later, the company has more than 600 owner-investors thanks to their crowdfunding efforts. 
Uegil stopped by Midori House to talk about how the brand's revolutionising the textile industry and why they're so proud to be owned by their customers. I wasn't very interested in clothing. I'm a political scientist and my co-founder was a, is a historian, so we just stumbled upon on this invention and, and the rest is just a big mess, I guess. We made so many mistakes and we had no idea what we were doing. But the part that I am proud of is the pivot that we ended up doing. And the realization, the wake-up call was when we understood that it's not how you manufacture a product that is really determining how sustainable you are or, or what kind of future you can create. It's the volume you manufacture. We have to slow down. We can't shop like we have. We have to change. We have to buy less. We have to buy better and create new business models that change everything around consumption. And when you realize that and you want to be a part of the future as a commercial company, it's kind of a shock because, you, of course, you make money when, you, when people buy your product. And asking them to buy less is obviously super scary. So we spent a few years thinking about, okay, how can we create a business model that actually gets people to buy less, wear more and wear better, uh, but also, of course, being sustainable for us economically. That was our second journey, which was more difficult, more scary. But I guess with COVID in 2020, we, we, we could speed it up. In, in the beginning, everything was scary. So we just decided, okay, we might go bankrupt anyway. So let's just jump into it. And we changed the business completely within months. And since then, it's been going a lot better, actually. Well, yeah. And obviously, I wanted to ask you specifically about that idea of selling less. Some of the brands that Monocle follows and is most passionate about endorsing are brands that exactly adhere to that principle you spoke about there, Ewan which is this idea of buying less buying better and that is a different kind of sustainability it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be recycled fabrics because if you buy one single quality item i don't know a pair of fine shoes if you keep them for 25 years that's true sustainability i think the other part of it is what you said which is the first sustainability that a business has to deliver is business stability right and sustainability it has to be viable otherwise you can have all these great ideas but they don't mean anything if you if you go out of business how tricky is the conversation then if it comes to things like funding the business i know that you guys essentially use crowdfunding don't you you invite people to buy into the business has that been crucial do you think that there would be a problem if you were trying to sell this narrative of selling fewer things if you were trying to speak to i don't know venture capitalists for example would that be a difficult conversation to have both yes and no. We've Because we have proven the model and we've been growing when the market has been degrowing, and the VCs are, are more interested. But in the beginning, it wasn't uh, very interesting at all. But also we see that the funds that are looking into the sustainability find us interesting. And they also see that brands with a different voice are interesting. A few of the VCs, not all of them, obviously. So being different helps. And also, of course, the green finance is, is growing more and more. So we, it's not impossible. I think it was very, very difficult a few years ago, but not anymore. Even though we have interest from VCs, we've 
decided to go down the crowdfunding alley, basically because it's it's fun to challenge also how finance works, and being owned by hundreds of people is a lot more fun than than being owned by just one big company. Well, I love that. And what's the point of doing anything, right, you, if you're not having a few a few laughs on the way? Tell me though, as you get bigger. And there are exciting opportunities, I'm sure, around the corner. We'll maybe talk about those in a minute. But as you get bigger, does it become more difficult to continue to imprint your personality, your values, those principles that you've built the business on? Because by definition, you're having to delegate decision making. There are more stakeholders, more people join the business, and maybe they don't get as this immersion initiation into the into the business because your time is more stretched. Is that a challenge, or do you think that you and and Magnus and others have you managed to kind of ride that out so far? No, I've any entrepreneur that says that that's not a problem would be lying. I guess. Growing is super hard for sure in many ways. And one of them is also how to maintain the radical voice, the different voice when you're growing. Like you say, you have many people you want to impress or want to be on the right side of as you grow. And then being the, the pirate on the ocean is increasingly hard. And that's something we talk about almost every day. Like we have to maintain the pirate role in, in our market. That's also part of a hard part of, of growing, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I wonder then, what does then that next phase of growth look like? Presumably there's an international element. What does that next phase of growth look like for you and the team? How do you calibrate it? Uh, number one for us is to get a wider product range, actually, within the Norwegian market and then establish ourselves here a lot more than we have. Up until now, it's been a lot of wool products, a lot of base layers, but to really get people to wear a product for 10, 20 years, we need to move out of outdoor products and also into the everyday wardrobe. So that's number one and really prove our model that people start to buy less. And then of course, going to Europe somehow is a natural second stage. So part of the, or a very important part of our business model is to sell direct D2C. There's no margin in our model to use retailers. The D2C model is not what it used to be five years ago. It's a lot harder now. It's a lot more expensive. So how to internationalize using social media, using internet, that recipe is not very obvious anymore. So um, I'm not going to try to explain how we try to do it because I guess we really don't know because it's more expensive, but it has to involve uh, repair centers in, in every country we go to. And that's also a very important part of our model. So when we open up in your town, it's going to come with a repair and, and hopefully also um, a small factory in, in your town. So it's a big move to go international for us now. It's not like it used to be just push on the Facebook button and ship anywhere. Yeah, and let's talk a bit about that repair thing because I think some consumers will have one or two brands in mind who, again, have made a real virtue of the fact that their products are to be kept, to be enjoyed, treasured, repaired, even passed on. And people don't tend to think about that with apparel. Tell me about other brands, because you must now have relationships or certainly you run into people running 
what I guess are competitors in this sort of super premium space, certainly around your price point. How do they sort of look at you? I think the brands I talk to like, yeah, yeah, you're annoying, but you're right. That's kind of more <laughs> or less the, the, the answer we get. But I also see that it's hard for them to, to really put weight behind what they communicate because they are in the old business model where they keep a lot of retailers, they have sales every year, they, they follow the trends, so they have the new colors and the collections every year, so they have stock that they have to sell or throw away even. So they follow the old path, which is economically a very challenging, that you are addicted to volume. Like putting the weight behind where you really mean it and have you, where you have a business model and, a, and you can promise something to your customers that yes, we will help you maintain the product and we will help you repair it. And yes, we will recycle it if it can't be repaired and like really do everything you can to, to respect the resources you have uh, taken from, from nature. That's hard. That's harder for me to see from the traditional brands. That was you, Egil Tobiasen, founder and CEO of Northern Playground. You can learn more about the brand by heading to northernplayground.no. And that's all for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do look out for Eureka, available every Friday. The programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Tamsin Howard. You can follow us and catch up with the archive at monocle.com or via your preferred podcast platform. To contact the team, write to Laura. Her email address is lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.